Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And uh, this is our only text for this morning, our only verse. We'll reference a couple others, uh, but there's a lot packed into one little verse. And uh, I think you'll see that as we come through our notes, there's a little more than usual. And uh, so I'll try to come through this in a timely fashion, but I want to communicate to you some things through this text that I think are good for us to see. And I've titled the message, The Great Gospel Fish, The Great Gospel Fish. And because we all know the story of Jonah and the great fish and what we find within that fish is actually a great picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we'll see shortly. But let's read our text. We have a long text, so we better start reading it. The Bible says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We think about the story of Jonah. Why is it that Jonah and his name is so widely known among people? When you first hear the name Jonah, what do you think of? You think of verse 17. This is what you think of when you hear the name Jonah. It's the description of Jonah being in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights. Even the secular world will reference this story at certain times, often in mockery and skepticism and uh, denial that such an event is even a possibility. Other times it may be referenced as an illustration or comparison. But regardless, this verse that we're looking at today is the most notable point in the book of Jonah as far as it's being known among people. But is Jonah being in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, is that really the main point of Jonah's account? See, sometimes people can miss the forest for the trees. We must see the bigger picture that is coming through the narrative that is Jonah. You see, the main, the main point of the story of Jonah is not about him being in the belly of a fish, but rather what led him to being in the belly of a fish and what God is doing for Jonah and going to do through Jonah and really the big picture of the whole narrative itself. To understand the big picture, you must read the whole book of Jonah. And that's why we're coming through it, verse by verse. We're looking at the whole thing. So I hope that you're getting the picture. But as we've journeyed through this to this point, we recall what led Jonah to this verse 17. Jonah was given the call of God, go to Nineveh. Jonah rejected that call. He said, nope, I'm going to Tarshish. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Hops on a boat, gets on the sea. And after a life-threatening storm, threatening to kill everyone... It was shown that there's no choice to calm this storm, but Jonah has to be thrown overboard. That's the only way. So they take up Jonah. They throw him into the sea. That was our last passage. That's the last message we looked at in Jonah. They, they lift up Jonah, cast him into the sea, and there Jonah disappears into the raging waves. And that was the last thing we saw with Jonah. Disappears. The sea instantly calms proving that Jonah's God is really the true God, the creator and controller of creation, just as Jonah had said to the sailors. The sailors had no clue what happened to Jonah. They thought him to be dead. And this is where our text picks up. We read that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Now, can you imagine being swallowed by a great fish? Or any animal, for that matter, that's big enough to do such a thing. What a horrifying thought, right? To be eaten alive, in a sense. 
And yet this is where we find Jonah, in the belly of an animal in the sea. And this one verse is a brief description of how Jonah is actually going to be brought back to land. Now, as you read chapter 2, Jonah details what actually happened to him in the sea. We will look at that uh, next week. But what we look at here today is that all of this text flows together. In fact, in the Hebrew, chapter 2 begins with verse 17. So in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 2 begins right here. It's not part of chapter 1. I don't really know the answer to why it's part of chapter 1 in the English, but we'll go with it, all right? We have it all. But while this one verse reveals really the climax of God's judgment on Jonah, it also reveals a great mercy extended to Jonah. And beyond the narrative of Jonah himself and what he's experiencing here is the greater picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he would come to die for our sins and rise from the dead three days later. So notice with me a few things in our notes this morning. I want to point out to your attention and I pray that we can glean some things. Number one, I'll point your attention to the providence of God over Jonah. This has been a reoccurring theme throughout this book, hasn't it? The providence of God over Jonah. Notice God's control over creation displayed. And I would add again. <laughs> again, because it's already been displayed throughout this book. Little by little and detail by detail, what have we seen woven through this book? It is the sovereignty of God over all things, and in particular of this event, we see his sovereignty and control over creation. What's it mean that God is sovereign? It means that he reigns over all things by his power and for his purposes. We see his providence and power over the storm. When Jonah chose to rebel, he hurled the storm. When Jonah was uh, was hiding in the ship, and then they try to seek out who, uh, whose fault this is. The lot cast fell on Jonah. God's providence again, controlling the dice, if you would. They finally cast him into the sea, and guess what? The sea calms. His providence and sovereignty over the weather seen again. This is shown throughout all the scriptures, that the heavens and the earth show forth that God reigns. The great God who created all things has the right power and ability to control all things that he has created. It's his divine prerogative because he is God. There's no overturning or changing what God had ordained here. And so Jonah is plunged into the sea at God's decree. That brings us to consider the question of what God has planned next, right? Imagine you don't have the rest of the book and you don't have verse 17 yet, and the story is just ongoing, present tense. What happens next? What happens next? Would God have thrown Jonah into the sea only to end his life permanently, leaving his body to decay at the bottom of the ocean? Would the sea become the graveyard for Jonah? Would this be the end of his story? Now let me note that God certainly could have ended Jonah's story here, and he would have been completely just in doing so. Every right to do so, right? But instead, God is going to use something to make sure Jonah is not left to rot in the sea. And no, it's not a life raft. It's not some of the cargo floating on the sea. Maybe he'll hold on. Maybe, maybe Jonah's a good swimmer. He's not going to be able to swim to shore, and God's going to give him that strength. Instead, we find the most impossible of options that we could think of 
happened to Jonah. In verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, if you were cast into the sea, what would be your first thought of rescue? Well, I really hope some big fish comes and swallows me and carries me to shore. Now, I'm kind of finicky about the ocean. I don't want any creature touching me if I'm in the water. I don't care if it's a little fish or a whatever. Not fond of that. Yet this is what God has ordained. A mysterious method. That a great fish be used on Jonah's behalf. This event is the most unconventional and seemingly impossible of options. Nevertheless, we read this great fish is appointed by God to swallow up Jonah. Now there are so many details we could dig into this, and I'll bring out a few. But... I want you to note just in focus point of this first point is God's control and sovereignty over this great fish. You notice that the Lord appointed this great fish. Appointed this great fish. That shows his control. The word appointed literally means to send. That that God has sent this great fish to that place at that time for this purpose of swallowing up Jonah. This word appoint is used four times in the book of Jonah. This is the first of its usage. You'll find it later in chapter 4 where God appoints this plant to comfort Jonah. Then he appoints a worm to destroy the plant. Then he appoints a strong east wind to come and bring, bring pain and misery to Jonah. All of this shows God has the sovereign right to do whatever he pleases with all that he has created. And when it comes to the fish, you think, can God control the fish? Absolutely he can. Because he created them. Genesis 1.20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. God put them there. He has created them. And he who created them controls them. What a mighty sovereign God we have. But notice letter B this morning. Not only do we see God's control over the fish, over creation displayed. We see God's care for Jonah actively displayed here. There is care and compassion for Jonah in God's actions. So we must understand this, that the great fish that has swallowed up Jonah is a vessel of God's providence over Jonah's life. How glad we should be at the providence of God, Christian. Even in the ways that are somewhat unconventional and unusual to our understanding. You see, it is in God's providence that He shows His deep care and love and compassion for His people even when they have gone down the road of rebellion. And by all means, we are prone to the road of rebellion. We like to do what goes against what is right, against what God's Word reveals. But consider this scenario and think of what Jonah's end would have been were it not for God's appointment of this fish. Jonah would have died in the sea and would have been buried in the sea, never to be known or heard from again. No more going back to Israel. No more going back to his loved ones if he had them. His story ends. There's a period to the sentence of his life. Consider yourself and your own times of rebellion. 
Where would you be if God had not intervened on your behalf? Maybe he didn't use a great fish, but he might have used a loved one to help warn you along the way. You might even experience the painful experience that woke you up from where you were. We shouldn't go the road to where we get to that point, but we are prone to. But you understand that this great fish serves as an act of mercy and as an act of judgment in display upon Jonah, just like he does in our own life. God has already determined that Jonah will be brought back to land and he is going to go to Nineveh. God's already determined that. He's decreed that. And so the great fish is the vessel, the instrument, the means used to bring Jonah back. There was no passing ship. There was no life raft. There was no, no uh, current that swept him back to land. And as we'll see in chapter 2, Jonah was indeed a dead man were it not for this fish. But Christian, I want you to understand that this displays for us the deep love that God has for his people. That though Jonah rebelled and displeased his God, it did not change the love of God towards him. God told Jeremiah that I have loved you with an everlasting love. God's love for his people is eternal. And if it's eternal, that means it had no beginning and therefore it can have no ending. That which never began to be cannot cease to be. His love for his people is deeper than you and I can even fathom. Now, this does not mean that love overrides and just sweeps rebellion under the rug. No, 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 friend. The whole reason Jonah's in this predicament is because of God's judgment. But understand that his judgment and discipline are evidence of his love for us. Proverbs 3.12, Solomon rightly says, For the Lord reproves him who loves, uh, who him he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. So God decides to use this great fish as his means of both mercy and discipline. But how should we understand this account? What kind of fish was this? That's a question many people ask. And I think sometimes we can focus too much on that stuff. But I'll, I'll briefly give you just a little detail here. How could Jonah have been in this fish for so long? Well, firstly, let's consider what was this fish. Some believe that this was a special creature. God created specifically for this event. It's possible. I wouldn't deny that possibility. Some believe it was a large whale that swallowed Jonah. What do we think of this creature? The word here for fish is dag, if I'm pronouncing that right. It probably sounds different in Hebrew. But it's a general Hebrew word for any aquatic creature. So it's not limited to the the modern-day scientific category of fish versus other types of creatures, it, it's broad in the way it's used. For example, God gave Noah the command to have dominion over the earth, and he used that same word to refer to all aquatic life in Genesis 9, verse 1 through 2. But you'll notice this, that when Jesus references the event of Jonah being swallowed in Matthew twelve forty, he uses the Greek word ketos, which means sea monster. The word in that passage is translated as great fish in the ESV and probably many other versions. It's translated in the King James as whale. So it's most likely that God has commanded a, a great whale, in my opinion, to swallow up Jonah since whales grow large enough to consume something the size of a human. Secondly, we ponder, how could Jonah survive inside the fish for three days and three nights? This is yet another big question people ask. What's God doing here? 
For the sake of our human minds, we can speculate and examine it somewhat, but we shouldn't get hung up here too long. Can a person live inside the belly of a whale? Well, scientifically, that's an impossibility. Note that Jonah, he's not in the mouth of the whale or the fish. He's in the belly of the fish. Now, as a kid growing up, I always had this vision of, you know, Jonah, he's in this big, broad, cave-looking scene, right? Maybe sitting on the tongue, and he's got a little, he's got a little lamp with him, and he's praying. That's nice for children's stories, but it's not reality. It's not reality. He's in the belly. The Hebrew word for belly refers to the entrails, the intestines. The Greek term for belly, used by Jesus in Matthew 12, 40, it refers to the organ of nourishment, especially the, the, the body's receptacle for ailments. It refers to belly, stomach. It can also refer to the space between the gullet and the intestines. So it could be that Jonah was in that space in between that's considered still the belly, although he's not in the area where digestion is taking place. But the point here is that, understand Jonah's predicament here. Jonah is in a very tight, constricted place that was no doubt painful and fearful beyond what we could ever imagine. You talk about claustrophobia. No, sir, not me. The question is, how could Jonah survive in such a state? Naturally, it's impossible. Miraculously, it's not impossible. And that's kind of the point here. Now, there's been some historical examples and recordings of people being swallowed and coughed back up. One example that I read up on was uh, that of a whaling ship called the Star of the East. It spotted a large sperm whale. It was back in February of 1891. Harpoon boats were launched, and one was capsized. Two men went overboard. One man drowned. But in time, the whale was killed and drawn by the ship to where it was secured and the blubber was removed. And the next day, its stomach was hoisted onto the deck and inside was the sailor, James Bartley. He was unconscious but alive somehow. After being revived, he resumed his duties on the ship. Now, if that happened to me, I'm changing my career path. No, thank you. But just imagine experiencing this sort of thing. Even this historical example does not equal what Jonah says. But thirdly, I want you to note this about this, this, this God's care for Jonah and his, his survival and his, his experience here. I want us to note this, is that this event is not about the details of the fish or Jonah's natural ability to survive inside the fish. The point is that God supernaturally intervened on Jonah's behalf through the means of a fish to spare him from certain death in the sea. And certainly this is where the skeptics assault the Word of God and challenge its credibility. The skeptic cannot and will not believe what seems to be an impossibility. Even liberal theologians cannot fathom a man being in the belly of a fish or a whale surviving, so they discount it altogether. They say it's just allegory or parable or something of that nature. To them it's an impossible notion. But that's kind of the whole point that we see over and over throughout the whole of the Scriptures. It is God alone who can overrule natural law because He created natural law. God is not bound to the finite limitations of human understanding. 
He's not limited in any way. Miracles, by definition, are outside of the normal course of nature. And Christian, you have a Bible full of miracles. And if you can't believe in miracles, you can't believe the Bible. Doug Stewart rightly said this, A miracle is a divine act beyond human replication or explanation. Exactly. How in the world can someone be risen from the dead? They can't naturally. How in the world can a dead sea, a large sea split in two and, and, and millions of people walk across on dry ground? They can't naturally. The Bible is a book of miracles, friend. And this is what we see here in the scriptures, that God does the impossible. God said through the prophet Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, he prays to the Lord, It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing's too hard for you. God said to him later in the same chapter, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? You know, another event that is often discounted and scoffed, and even by liberal theologians, they try to sidestep it. It's the virgin conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. It's unnatural, isn't it? But what did the angel Gabriel tell her in Luke 1, For nothing will be impossible with God. Because Mary's question was, how? How can this be? The answer, nothing, can is, nothing is impossible with God. So God has commanded the fish to do something for His glory, and the fish has done exactly as the Lord has decreed with this truth being brought to our our, our, our main point is that this is to the glory of God. The great fish is a means to an end in His plan. Notice with me number two. Number two, we see the picture of the gospel in Jonah. We see the providence of God over Jonah in the fish and in his supernatural Ability, But consider Jonah's time in the fish for a moment. Notice that Jonah was swallowed and he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now just ponder that for a moment. Ponder that for a moment. Talk about a long trip in an uncomfortable and rather painful environment. Now, after less than a day of traveling in a comfortable vehicle, I'm ready to get out of that thing. But you imagine the length of time here for Jonah... In this tight, constricted space. Jonah doesn't have any options. He can't stop at a loves for coffee. And get out and jump back in. He's stuck. For a specific period of time. How would you react to being in the belly of a great fish? What thoughts would be going through your mind? Would you be fearful and anxious? Would you not pray more than you have ever prayed in your life? In my mind, I would be thinking that this fish is going to be my grave because my only end is through the end of the fish. Digestion. And it's a sovereign miracle that this doesn't happen. That the fish doesn't digest Jonah. Take him all the way through his intestines and digest him, right? But God here is working on his behalf. Now, we can only imagine what this must have been like in the belly of the, fr- and the fish. It was painful, uncomfortable. And friend, that is the condition of everyone who runs from God. R.T. Kendall rightly said, The belly of the fish is not a happy place to live, but it is a good place to learn. 
You see, Jonah did not pray at all while on the ship. But what do we see him doing inside the belly of the fish? In verse 1 of chapter 2, we see him praying. We see him praying. You see, often God may cause or allow us to go through something extremely uncomfortable, painful, and unsettling for the purpose of drawing us back to Himself. And Christian, this is a warning for all of us. You don't have to go down that road where you're forced by God's discipline to draw back to Him. It's a lot better not to go down that road. You don't have to be a Jonah. Don't be a Jonah. When you look at this scene, Jonah is at rock bottom. And as you look at chapter 2, he literally was at rock bottom. And rock bottom is a place none of us want to be, for it is terrifying and dangerous. It's corrective to us. God said in Proverbs 15.10, There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. That's the end result of just neglecting the word of God, neglecting the truth, neglecting what we know to be right. There is severe discipline that comes the further away you run. Jonah must have pondered the sovereignty of God over his life and how serious God was about this calling. What deep thoughts he must have had. When it comes to the three days and three nights, some differ in their understanding of this number. The phrase could be intended as an approximation rather than precise measurement of 72 hours. Or it could be a precise measure of 72 hours. There are theologians that differ on that. I wouldn't debate that too deeply. One thing we do know is that there's a specific time factor here that includes at least part of three days. Why is that important? Well, this time indicator was understood by the Jews as an indication of death. Because after the third day, you get to the fourth day, guess what? They're for sure dead, right? John eleven thirty nine. 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an over, for he has been dead four days. Jesus intentionally waited till after Lazarus was in the tomb for after three days to show that he really did raise him from the dead. So therefore, what you see with Jonah is that the time frame suggests that God's power and grace retrieved Jonah as if from the dead, and the great fish was the vehicle that God used. So in one sense, the fish is used to rescue Jonah. And in another sense, the fish is a threat to Jonah's life. And God's the one who's keeping it where it needs to be. As you come on down through this text, we come to see as it brings us to a broader picture. In letter B, notice, consider Jonah's type in the fish. What is a type? A type is a picture. It's a picture. You see, the picture of this text is not really about Jonah. It's not really the focus is on Jonah in the immediate context it is, but in the broader, broader application of Scripture, it's bigger than that. The focus is not really about the fish or the sea. The focus in all of Scripture, do you understand, is the Lord Himself. God has given us His Word for His glory, for His revelation. It is all about Him. Now, Jesus makes this direct connection in the New Testament between Jonah and himself. Let's turn and look at it in Matthew chapter number 12, in verse 38 through verse 41 for a moment. Matthew 12, in verse 38 through verse 41. <clears throat> Notice that the scripture says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. 
But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. What a direct connection Jesus links to Jonah's experience in the fish. Let me point out to you a couple things about Jesus' connection here. The first thing I want to point out to you by way of validity of the account of Jonah is that it shows us the real history of the events of Jonah. Christ did not view Jonah's experience in the belly of a fish as allegory or parable. Like many scholars and skeptics today. No, Jesus affirms the historical truth, the factual truth of Jonah actually being in the belly of the whale or the fish for three days and three nights. You can't deny this account. But secondly, and most importantly, Jesus uses Jonah's experience as a picture and sign of his own coming death and resurrection. Now, this evil generation of Jesus' day, they demanded a sign, as if he's not given them enough already. Healing this person, healing that person, doing all these things. But he says, you're going to get the sign of Jonah. Well, what is the sign of Jonah? He answers that question. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know what Jonah's showing us here? Or Jesus, rather. That Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish is a picture of death and resurrection. Jesus' experience is actual death and resurrection. See, the Jews understood the events of Jonah to be miraculous. That Jonah, he was as good as a dead man, and yet he's brought back to the land of the living by the great fish. You see, Jesus, understand, he is going to die in a horrific and undeniable way. There is no doubt that Jesus dies. The people who are questioning him saw Jesus hanging on a Roman cross. Jesus didn't just pass out. They saw him die. They saw Jesus die. And guess what else they heard about, I will say? They heard of the resurrection of Jesus three days later. How'd they hear about it? Because the soldiers who saw the stone rolled away and experienced the earthquake and the angel came running and told exactly what they saw. The tomb was empty. And what do these same people do? Do they say, oh, this is the sign of Jonah he was talking about. We need to repent and believe on him. No, they paid the soldiers off to tell a lie about it. They rejected the sign that Jesus said they would be given. The sign was so plain, but they refused to believe in their Messiah. But what a picture this is, Christian. What greater sign could be given to prove that Jesus is the Messiah than His own resurrection from the dead? 
And friend, that really is the crux of Christianity. Disprove the resurrection, it all unravels. Guess what? It can't be done. Skeptics have tried and only found themselves converted. But within the sign of Jonah and the death of Jesus, we see some further parallels I'll share with you. Some of these are not my own. I share them from what I've read, but some are. The first is that the end of God's judgment is death. When, when Jonah was swallowed by the great fish, this was the climax of, 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 his, of his, his judgment from God. He's in the whale. He's in the fish. Jonah's picture of death in the sea, understand, was that of great suffering, especially as you read chapter 2. But in Jonah's suffering, his, what seemed to be his death, brought the end of God's judgment on the ship and the sailors that they were experiencing. And in the same way, it is only through the judgment that was poured on Christ in his death that the judgment of God upon his people is removed through faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Tertullian rightly comments here about this, what, about Jonah. He says what he endured was a type of the Lord's suffering by which pagan penitence would also would be redeemed. Another parallel here. To all appearances, the descent into the deep was the end of Jonah's life. Just as Jesus' death on the cross seemed to be his end, right? Jesus is hanging there on the cross. Where are the disciples? They've scattered, they've fled, they're hiding, they think it's the end. Where are, these, where are these, uh, 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 these Pharisees and Sadducees? They go back to their temple, go back to their ways, thinking, all right, we got rid of him, it's over. It seemed to be the end, didn't it? For Jonah and for Jesus. But that would not be the case in the end, as the disciples would soon know. In Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. The risen Lord with his scars intact on his, on his hands and his side. He, he shows himself to them. That he is risen from the dead. Peter Williams comments here, Just as Jonah was delivered from his watery grave to continue the work of preaching, repentance, and salvation to the Ninevites, so Christ through his resurrection continued through the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church to preach the gospel of salvation to the whole world. Here's another aspect I think is a great parallel. Thirdly, is that both Jonah and Jesus' experiences were of God's sovereign appointment. You see, it is God who arranged this great fish to come swallow up Jonah at the exact time for the right purpose. It is God who appointed the redemptive death and resurrection of Jesus, even from eternity past. Listen to what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 through 24. He says to those who crucified him, those who called for his death, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You know what Peter's showing here? Is that God arranged all of this 
for redemption to be accomplished. They crucified Him. But God had appointed His crucifixion. Just as God appointed His resurrection. It was all by sovereign appointment for God's purposes to outflow. This event with Jonah, it's far greater than just a miracle in the fish. It is the message of salvation to the world in Christ Jesus. Now this begs the question for many, did Jonah actually, or literally, die? I've held both sides of this view, and I've gone back and forth. Certainly that would answer the question of whether Jonah survived or not in the belly of the whale, right? If he's dead, it's no longer a miracle, really, he's just preserved. The miracle of being kept alive is done away. Well, I think it's possible that Jonah could have died in the sea, was swallowed by the whale, and resurrected by God. I don't think that's what this text of Scripture says happened. Why do I think that? I'll give you just a few brief examples. And you may differ from me, and that's fine. I'll hug you and shake your hand, and we'll be friends. My first reason is that Scripture never says Jonah died. It just doesn't say it. The idea is drawn from his prayer in chapter 2, where Jonah says in verse 2, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and in verse 6, You brought me up, brought up my life from the pit. Now, Sheol and the pit are used in reference to the place of the dead, the underworld. So what I have read is that some think that Jonah died, his spirit was praying from the realm of the dead in Sheol, or what we would call paradise, while his body is at the bottom of the sea. What's wrong with that picture? Well, one, it's theologically odd. If Jonah was in paradise because he literally died, why would he be praying to be brought back to life to do what he didn't want to do in the first place? It doesn't make any sense. But secondly, in regards to that point, Jonah is speaking in the same poetic language as David in the Psalms. Chapter 2 is essentially a psalm. David said in Psalm 86, 13, For great is your steadfast love for me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. David didn't literally die and was resurrected. He's speaking in a poetic language, meaning that God saved him from the finality that is death. We'll expound that a little further next chapter. Second reason, I don't think that he literally died. Some use Jesus' reference to Jonah to mean that since Jesus literally died, then Jonah must have literally died too in order for that to be the right picture. But you've got to understand, Jonah, Jesus' use of Jonah's experience is a contrast of picture with reality. Jonah is a type, a picture. Just as Isaac being offered on Mount Moriah is a picture of the father sacrificing his son. Isaac didn't literally die, but he's a picture of one who's going to die. A picture is not the literal reality. The same applies to Jonah. It is Jonah's time in the fish. And what is meant and understood by that contrast, not his physical state of literally dying and rising from the dead that, Jonah, that Jesus is referencing. Jonah's time in the fish pictured death and resurrection while Jesus literally did die and rise after the same appointed time. So Jonah returns from the edge of death by a miracle because Jonah was as good as dead. While Jesus, who is greater than Jonah, actually did rise from the dead by his own power. 
You see, analogies do not require absolute agreement in every detail. We have to understand that with types and images. But here's another reason I don't think Jonah literally died, because Jonah prays from the belly of the fish. He's alive and conscious in the belly when he prays. There's two prayers, really, that you see. One while he's in the sea, and one while he's in the fish. He consciously prays while in the fish. He's not dead inside the belly, at least when he's praying. So, so since he is alive in the belly, that disconnects, disconnects the very wooden interpretation of Jesus' contrast with Jonah, meaning that he had to literally die. To me, that's one of the plainest observations. Now, there's my reasoning. You can give me your reasoning if you differ later. Whether you believe Jonah literally died or not, that really isn't the point, is it? The point is the gospel of Christ seen in the picture of Jonah's experience and what God was doing for him and through him that would bring salvation to the Ninevites. Christian, aren't you thankful for the picture of the gospel? Aren't you thankful for the actual gospel? May we rejoice in what Christ has done for us. Lastly, number three, and I'll be done. I'm almost done, promise. We've got food waiting. Can you smell it? I can't, so we're good. I know it's there, though. Notice with me, number three, the power of grace. The power of grace towards Jonah. And this, is, this really is the, the broader picture, just if you want to narrow it down in a summary, is that Jonah deserved death for his sin, didn't he? Jonah deserved death. I mean, where, where would Jonah be without God's intervention with this fish? He would be dead. Literally, dead, at the bottom of the sea. And that, friend, is what sin brings. The wages of sin is death. And so Paul warns Christians in Rome. He warns them, what fruit do you have in those things that you're now ashamed of? The end of those things is death. Christian, don't follow after sin. You know what it leads to. It's a dead-end road. Who in their right mind would travel down a road that says, bridges out, I'm going to keep going anyway. You know better. Don't do it. Don't do it. It only leads to ruin and can lead to death. This is the end result of sin. This is what Jonah deserved. He deserved death. And often the believer like Jonah, we may go into a season of rebellion like that. What do we deserve in that time? We deserve death. We do. We deserve God's corrective hand in the greatest way he can correct us but letter b is where we see the grace of god is that jonah he deserved death but he received mercy from god oh christian i'm so thankful for this because i know how sinful my life is past present and even future i don't know what the future holds well, I know my conviction and your conviction should be to walk with the Lord, to be holy and walk with Him. We are all prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, the song says. How merciful was God with Jonah? He could have easily just let Jonah die in the sea, never to return, and called somebody else to go to Nineveh. But instead, God was merciful. His mercy and steadfast love Grip hold of his people. Lamentations 3.22, the prophet writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. I want you to think for a moment of how great his mercy is 
in this world and into your life. Think about how merciful he is to the many blasphemous, scoffing sinners around us. Every time they suck in air, they're sucking in mercy. They're breathing and living on mercy. But consider us believers who know better. We who know the Lord. We know the Scriptures. We know the truth. We know what sin is and yet still do it. How merciful to God is God to us, even in His hand of correction. Even the painful things we experience as correction, they are acts of mercy. And here is the great parallel we see with Jonah's situation and the grace he receives. What Jonah deserves and receives is a direct parallel to what Nineveh deserves and receives. Jonah deserves death and receives mercy. Nineveh deserves death and receives mercy. And not only is it a parallel of Nineveh, it's a parallel of all of God's people who have been saved by the marvelous grace of God. Christian, you deserved death, but in Christ, what did you get? Mercy and life. And that's really what this is all about. God sovereignly appointed Jonah to go and show forth his righteousness, his judgment, but also his mercy. Jonah is the one in great error. He doesn't like the Gentiles, he doesn't like the Ninevites, and he has, good, he has human reason behind that. But God's teaching us something, that God is no respecter of persons, and He will save whoever He deems to save. doesn't matter what their background is. doesn't matter how wicked they are. God, in His grace, can save the most vile of sinner. And that, today, is what I want you to think on. Especially if you do not know Christ today. You think, oh, I'm so sinful, I don't know that I could be saved. Friend, don't doubt the blood of Christ and its power. His blood can wash the vilest sinner clean. You must repent and believe on Him. And Christian, if you have repented and believed on Him, learn from Jonah, don't follow his route, but rejoice and praise Him for the mercy that He has bestowed upon you. Because He's merciful to you every day that you live. Let's stand our feet as we have a closing song. Father, we bow before You this morning so thankful for the grace that You have given us. The mercy that you've given us. What a great lesson we see in Jonah in so many ways. In such a short book, you have packed in so much deep and rich truth. Help us, Lord, to take it to heart. Open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to see what we need to see regarding our own spiritual state before you. I don't know the hearts of anyone in this room. There may be some sitting here today that does not know you, that are not saved. Lord, I pray that you convict and draw and bring them to know you by faith alone. There may be some today that are kind of like Jonah. They're feeling a little rebellious, want to do their own thing, want to discount the word of God. Oh, Lord, I pray that you correct them before it gets to a point where worse correction must come. Help us, God. Give us repentance today. In Jesus' name, amen.